Has anybody else experienced some type of sickness in their house? Like someone's just like running rampant. Is, is that, amen. It, it just, praise God. So you can pray for me as I'm preaching that I don't pass out or anything like that, because that would be awkward. Now, um, we have been putting this series uh, we've been putting this series on hold for a while, uh, and I and honestly, I just really think that's just been the Lord's timing. That um, for such a time as this, we we are going to take some extended time to walk through what what really um, most would argue, I would argue, I desperately believe is central to understanding Christianity. And because it's central to understanding Christianity, it's central to our lives as Christians, if we are Christians. And it's this reality, this idea, this concept, which is more than a concept, it's a truth that God is Father. Now, even that statement or that idea of Father, I know it provokes some things inside of us. It provokes um, some, some, some emotions that may not be um, good or healthy. It provokes anger. Um, grief, sadness, for some of us provokes joy and gladness. And you're like, yeah, like I, I understand and I love and I appreciate this idea of father. And all of those motions are all across the room right now. And we are fully aware of that. And we are fully aware that this, for some of us, may be a tender, a journey the next five weeks where it's like we're unpacking some concepts um, that you're like, man, I actually don't agree with that at all. Um, we're opening some doors that you've kind of had closed for a while and we're and so there's a lot of stuff behind there that's going to come spilling out and that's okay so for some of us it may be a very tender journey others others it's going to be like yeah i've been waiting for this but the prayer is that for all of us it would be transformative let me start like this when the scriptures speak about the fatherhood of god it's not metaphorically it's not, it's not figurative language. It's, it's not like, oh, God is kind of like a, a father. You know how you use a metaphor or a figurative language to try and describe something that seems indescribable. So you're trying to help people understand something. And, and yes, there's times where there's figurative language applied to who God is. But as it relates to the fatherhood of God, the fatherhood of God is not a metaphorical statement. It's a statement of identity. God isn't like a father. He has eternally been a father. And so you look at this relationship. We sung it in the song, Wonderful, Merciful Savior. And it was a very Trinitarian song where you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all interacting, co-equal, existing for eternity. And there's been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That father is not just a description of what God is like. It's a designation of who he is. And now that doesn't mean that he is better than any other person existing in the Trinity. It's really a designation of how he relates within the Trinity and how the Trinity relates to him in that he is chief among the Godhead. That is a super complex concept that we are not going to unpack in this time or over the next five weeks, but that's the beauty of conversation, and that's why a sermon doesn't have to deal with everything. It just has to speak what the scriptures are speaking for the people that it's intended to speak, and so God's name, nomenclature as, as father is not metaphorical. It's, it's, it's an identity. It's who he is. I mean that because oftentimes we are, we are shaped by our perspective of our own fathers. That's going to be next week as we deal with father wounds. Let me just give you some stuff that I hope happens over the next few weeks, like some shifts that we hope take place, should take place, um, and that we should continue to grow. And let me just rattle them off for time's sake. The first is that as it relates to 
to God and how we relate to him is that we would move from fear-based to grace-based, that our relationship with God the Father would be like defined by grace and not fear. Um, so been off social for um, a while, praise God for that, hugging back in at the end of the month. But before I went off, like um, I saw something that was going around Christian social, Christian Twitter, Christian Instagram, you know, like on social, there's like tribes. And so you got like black Twitter, you got like white Twitter, you got like Christian, right? You know, you know, that makes sense. And so what was going on Christian Twitter was this um, post, which I thought was good. I was like, I usually don't like stuff that's on Christian Twitter, just to be honest. Um, it's a little lame. But I thought this was great and rich and robust. And essentially what it says is that um, when, when, when we sin or when we mess up, there's a difference between religion and the gospel. And what religion says is, I've messed up. My dad is going to kill me, right? But what the gospel says is, I've messed up. I need to call my dad. And what it's getting at is the Christian Twitter for the win, right? And what it's getting at is that there's a difference between approaching God based on fear and approaching God based on grace. And truth be told, if we have a fear-based mentality, we really don't approach God at all. And so really one of the shifts is that we would move from fear-based to grace-based in how we approach and relate to God. The next shift would be that we would move from selective obedience to sincere devotion. There's a difference. And if you, if you are a parent, first of all, all of us have children. You didn't just show up. Okay. And so, and so if, even if I use some illustrations that are like from a parent's perspective, you were a child and still are at one point in time. Amen. So, but if you're a parent, you could tell the difference when somebody is just like selectively obeying what you say. Yeah, he's like, you're just doing what you think I want partially so that you don't get the consequences of your act. You know what I mean? Like you can know. So, so what we're hoping is that there's a shift from just selective obedience. I will obey the things that I like or the things that will keep me from the things I don't like and to a posture of sincere devotion. I obey not because I'm afraid. I obey because I treasure and I trust. Does that make sense? And so we're hoping that that would be a shift that also takes place. Another shift that we're praying takes place that we grow in um, would be that we would move from anxious toil to rested work. And so when you look at Psalm 127, whenever we do a family dedication, we use that psalm. It's one of the psalms that really has shaped the foundation of how we parent and how we live as a Ukebu family. And, and it's, just a, it's just a beautiful psalm. And after, at, at, in, in the midst of it, what you get is this idea that we, some of us, we just rise early, go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil about trying to get blessing um, by our own strength at our own hands. And then it's this, this beautiful statement, but God gives rest to his beloved, that God gives freely often what we try to attain by force. And so that we would see God as father and that we would have this posture that's more rested in how we work versus just anxiously busy in ourselves that will come out later in our time. And the last move um, is from passive participation to active pursuits, that we wouldn't just kind of just meander our way through our lives, just kind of linger in this thing called Christianity and just kind of passively let stuff happen to us, but we would actively be engaged relating to the Father who loves us. Those are shifts that I, that, I, that, I, that I hope, that we hope would take place over the next five weeks and that we would grow in. I need to say this. You know that in order for that to take place, our perspective of God has to be expanded. We have to have a right view of who God is because how you approach people, it's really dependent on two things. I'm going to say the second at the end of this time. Let me say the first now. How you approach somebody is really based on how you see them. 
right? Your perspective of a person shapes how you approach them. That's why this is such a crucial idea that we would see God as father, not like our earthly fathers, but like the heavenly father he is. And what, what we start to see is that a failure to receive God or to relate to God or to experience God as father is not because of some deficiency in him. It's because of some disbelief in me. Like if I do not receive God as father, it's not because there's something inherently wrong with him. It's because there's something inherently broken inside me, disbelief that leads to disregard and disobedience. And because there's something broken in me called disbelief, not just merely disobedience, the way that I start to fix what's broken is not through strength or will. I'm not going to will myself to now start to receive God as father. The way I start to erase the disbelief is what experiences of truth, of beauty, of goodness surrounding God as father. I have to experience him. And in order to experience him, I have to see him. And so the rest of our time is really seeing what are the essential dynamics of God as father. Over 42 times, Paul alone in the New Testament uses this idea of father. Jesus himself says God is his father. In fact, it's what got him killed. They were like, yeah, what, what nailed Jesus to a cross was blasphemy that they were saying, yo, he is saying God isn't just, just general being up there, but he's a very personal father. And he was making himself equal with God. And they said, you can't do that, die. So this is a huge deal. And so we want to see what are the essential dynamics of God as father that will hopefully start to shape the way we see him and allow us to approach him well. Matthew 6 is going to be where we um, go for that. So read with me, and then we'll, we'll go a bit by bit. And so um, Matthew 6 is loaded, but we're, we're only going to really deal with the first part. It, it starts in verse 7. And when you pray, I like that it picks up in the middle of it. It's like, and when you pray, there's a lot of stuff that's implied there. It implies that you're actually praying. Some of us aren't praying, but the implication is that we consistently, continuously pray. And when you pray, keep going. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles. The identity of God, he is starting to redefine what, what, what it means to be the people of God and how the word of God and, and the law of God is central to that, but it's not the way that we think it is. So he's like, I know you heard it said like this, but I tell you verily, verily, I say, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this comprehensive unpacking of who God is who we should be, and what life looks like. That's the Sermon on the Mount in a nutshell, amongst other things. And what you see in this particular aspect is a clear and obvious rebuke towards Pharisees and a particular type of self-righteousness. Now, depending on who you talk to, I love Christianity because there's so much diversity in there, not just ethnically, but theologically, that's fair game. But depending on who you talk to and what they're framework for understanding the scriptures is they will emphasize a particular dynamic of this. So they will emphasize the rebukes here. And I don't think that's bad. They're obvious. Don't practice your righteousness in front of men, right? The arrogance of the Pharisees, are, is, it's obvious. But I think there's another way that we could see what's happening here. That is not just a rebuke, although it is. But in this rebuke, there's some stuff that's being revealed about God that's pretty profound. 
That's pretty exciting, encouraging if we see it. Notice verse 7. So, so he says this. He says, yo, look, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, what, the, what, they're, what, they're, what they're getting at is, is this, this pray, there's a type of prayer that is really just manipulative, right? That is like, if I, if I just speak the dictionary, <laughs> then this God will answer my prayers. And Jesus is saying, that's actually not the way it works. But in saying that's not the way it works, he's telling us something about God that I think is profound. God is a father who is free. That's huge. Y'all is like, nobody, you know how sometimes you preach like, man, people are oomph. Y'all didn't oomph there. That was an oomph moment. You missed it. God is a father who's free. Now, here's what, I, what happened when everybody found out that I, my first child was a, a daughter, Serenity. First of all, people are weird. Oh, man, your first one a girl. I wish it was a son. That's sexist and wrong. But, you know, but that often happens. I'm, that's not good. Let me just say that. It's not okay. But that's what people did. You want to get some guns? I'm not, I'm not in Texas anymore, but maybe, right? And so, but they would say, Moochie, she's going to have you wrapped around her fingers. Have you ever heard that, those statements? And it was like, no. <laughs> Lies from the pit of hell, right? Destruction, despair, Lion King 2. He's not one of us, but that's a great movie. Rabbit trails, I prayed against it. Now, <laughs> come back, Muchi. But when she was born, yo, and we locked eyes, it's cr- crazy stuff, right? Welcome to our family. And so, but there's this imagery of a child having their parents wrapped around their, their, their fingers. And we know inherently that may sound cute, but that's actually pretty dangerous. Because what tends to happen now is that the parent abdicates their responsibilities, and, and they are no longer leading or shaping the child. The child is shaping and leading them. That's a big deal. God is not like that. He's free. He's not bound to us. There's a lot of weird theology that in an attempt to like, lift up our identity says some pretty crazy and dangerous stuff. God is not consumed with me. He cares deeply about me. But he's not consumed with me. And that difference matters. I did not exist for eternity with him. Jesus did. And the spirit of God did. I'm not central to God's life and plan. I'm just critical to it. Does that make sense? And so we see from the beginning, even here, your many words aren't going to manipulate God. God is a father who is free. But, but even that aspect of it, there's, there's more like it. So, so for here, so eight, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. So there's a lot here. Even in the first part of six, there's this language, God sees in secret and he knows. So God is present. That's a huge one we're going to get to next week. But this right here is part of the manipulation is because you're trying to get something from God and, and you feeling like you have to manipulate to get something from God says what you actually believe about him. If, if I, we, we know this practically, right? There's certain people where we want to ask them for help. We butter them up. Right, you know what I'm saying? It's like when you want to tell something to somebody, you know, somebody you have to rebuke, you like give them all these pillow, like empty, caloric, like, you know what I'm saying, compliments to crush them. And in the same way, like, you know what I'm saying, we, we kind of just like, man, please, to get you to do something that we want you to do, you know, because we're like, man, you're, you're kind of mean-spirited, maybe a miser, so I got to butter you up to get you into the right mood to do it, right? And if you're married, we know what that means as well. I got to 
manipulate you. So I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to do all this so that one day, you know, at 11 p.m. when the kids are down, we're going to make some more. You know what I'm saying? And so we have this approach to all of our relationships that is often like it's just super manipulative. And it says something about what we believe about that person. Right? Does that make sense? I'm, I'm being a little extra, but are you tracking with me? And so, so this manipulative approach to prayer, what it's not just many words, but it's, it's words that you're trying to just convince God is saying that you don't think God is generous enough where he would just actually act with you having to twist his arm. And so what he's saying is God's not just a father who's free. God's a father who is generous. This is the entirety of the scriptures, that God is a generous father who gives good gifts to his children. And the fact that he knows beforehand means that he's in tune with who you are. So his generosity is very personal. God is a father who is generous and personal. Uh, only in that one verse, there's more. Verse 9, pray then like this. I, I said it almost offhandedly that it, it assumes this continuous, regular life of prayer. That, that is, that's, that's implied in Matthew 6 that you would continue to pray. But just that even that statement of pray then like this, to me, it also gives us a huge aspect of who God is that I think is often missed. God's not just a father that's free. God's not just a father who's generous. God's a father who's accessible, that's a big deal. Because for some of us, I, you know, it's like, how do I talk about father wounds without talking about father wounds next week? Because I don't want to, you know, preach next week's sermon now. But, you know, but just for some of us, like, we, we had a father who just wasn't accessible. He wasn't accessible because he wasn't there. He was one of those lames. He wasn't accessible because he was there, but he wasn't accessible emotionally. It, can't bother him because he may be angry. So, so, but here, as we approach God like that, but God is super accessible. We have access right now to the Father through Christ, more on that. But he's accessible. You know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, um, and in that conversation, he was sharing some stuff that was going on in his heart that was reflective of some stuff that was going on in my heart, and really stuff that I constantly wrestle with. Like, I have a tendency to only bring God the big stuff, as if he's bothered by me, Right? Like I'm a nuisance. So it's only when all hell is breaking loose, then I'll come to God. And what I'm saying is something critical about his accessibility that's wrong. Like his accessibility is tied to his generosity. God's not bothered by the things that bother us, big or small. So we bring him to him because he's accessible. So God's not just a father who's free. He's a father who's generous. He's a father who is accessible. And all of that is before pray then like this and we get this loaded picture of God. Let's get to the loaded picture of God. Are you still tracking, tracking with me a little bit? Awesome. Nobody responded. Verse 9. <laughs> our Father, our Father, that's a water moment. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the lead up to this prayer has some essential dynamics, right? So this freedom, this generosity, this accessibility regarding God, but the actual beginning of the prayer, it's, it's, it's world-altering. Our Father, that is probably one of the most personal statements in the entire scriptures. Our Father, it's relational. It's relational. God is a Father who is personal, not distant, present. And so even this invitation to pray 
is really an invitation to relationship. It's not an invitation to manipulate, to just get stuff. It's an invitation to be with. That matters. He's personal. Our Father. But notice, he's different. Our Father in heaven. That means he's not just personal. So, so God is a Father who is not just personal. God is a fa- Father who is powerful. That's a big deal. So like growing up, you know, maybe my dad could take your dad. Did y'all ever do that if your dad was president in your life? Like, you know what I'm saying? My dad was African, short, stocky. So I just assumed he could beat everybody up. I was like, my dad could take your dad. And then I started meeting other fathers, and I was like, man, I was wrong. <laughs> you know, like, you know, there's some guys who look like Ivan Drago from, like, Rocky. Like, you know, if we die, we die. Like, my, and my dad can't take them, you know. But who is like our God? This is why Isaiah 40 is so rich, where you start to talk about just the power and magnitude of God, so much so, and this is where figurative language matters, so much so where everybody else is like a grasshopper in comparison. You know what you do with grasshoppers? Stomp them if you can catch them. They're like ants. He has more power in his foot than any being has in their entire body. Father in heaven, his throne sits above the earth. He looks down. We look up. It's a huge deal. So you have this free, not bound by us, not consumed with us, but caring for us, generous, accessible, personal, powerful father which means that this God is worthy. God is a father who's worthy. Now we know that too because of that phrase, hallowed be your name. Um, it's, you know, there's certain languages like old ink, like hallowed. This is like, it just kind of sounds cool, but it's rich and it's robust. Hallowed be your name. It's this idea, it's this idea of something being treated uniquely. Like it's, it's different. It's set apart, but even set apart doesn't really do it justice. It's like there's this comprehensive, unique way that I relate to it. The, the best way I could communicate that or even I guess trying to describe it is, do you know, how many people like, like are fashion people? Out of, just out of curiosity, don't feel, you, be afraid to raise your hand, amen. Because you know, Thank you. Thank you, Da. And you, Da, you are a fashion guy. Let me just affirm you in your fashionista. I don't know if that's what you call guys, but whatever male fashion people are, that's you, my G, right? But have you ever, have you ever, like, bought a pair of white shoes? My, my goodness. So you don't even buy them anymore, right? But that's I'm seeing. I've tracked with you, like, and so growing up, you know, Nelly had this song, Give Me Two Pairs, I Need Two Pairs. Air Force Ones, right? And so when I tell you the, the, the majority of fights I saw from eighth grade to my freshman year in college were over Air Forces and Jordans, like white shoes, and somebody scuffed them. And it was a wrap. It's like, oh, you, oh, knock if you butt. And it was just crazy. It was utter madness. I'm dead serious. It was like madness. And so, <laughs> well, you can't be back there knocking if you bucking, man. All right, focus. Lock in. Lock into Jesus, all right? 
And so, and so what would happen is if you got white shoes, you treated them differently, right? How long did they stay in the box? You probably kept the box. And so after you took them off, you put them in a box, you put them in a closet, and then you would only get them when you needed them, right? There was a unique way that you related to those ice white forces than everything else. You track with me? What, 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 what he's saying is, when it says, hallowed be your name, what he's, he's like, there's this utterly, comprehensively different way that you relate to God than everything else. And the only way you do that is if he's worthy because you treat differently that which you treasure. And so we treasured those white forces. And so we treated them differently. And what he's saying is God is to be so treasured that he's treated altogether differently. That's a huge deal. He's worthy. He's a father who is worthy. And what's even more fascinating about this hollowing is what in particular he's saying needs to be hollowed, his name. Hallowed be your name. Now, throughout the scriptures, and really not just the scriptures, but just our own shared history, we know that there's something unique about a name. A name isn't just what you call somebody, but it's also their character or what you hope their character will be. So, um, you know, our third child, his name is Noah. The reason we named him Noah is because God gives rest. And Daniel was like, no, I'm not having more kids. That's just that ship has sailed. And so God, we're praying that God would give rest to Diamond from all of this childbearing. And that's why we named him Noah. I'm dead serious. And so you track throughout the scriptures and you see, that's what, this is why even in Genesis chapter 3, it's very fascinating where you see Eve or woman being named Eve by Adam. After she sinned, she ate from the fruit first because of this passive man who was beside her. And so sin entered into the world, and God is handing out judgment in light of the sin. And then you get to to now this naming of this woman, and he says, your name will be Eve because you are mother of all the living. That's fascinating because in this moment, the most appropriate would have been like Medusa or Gorgon or something to signify disgust or death because really you ate from this tree and now look where we are, woman, right? And, and so, but instead of doing that, that was weird, but instead of doing that, um, instead of doing that, he said, he said, Eve, because he was naming her in light of the promise of God in Genesis 3.15 that from you, woman, there will be a seed that fixes all of this. So he's naming her in light of the promise. So, so naming matters. And what we see in the history of the scriptures is God actually names himself. In Exodus 3, where, where he's getting ready to call Moses to go on his behalf to go free a people. And Moses is like, yo, well, who shall I tell them is sending me? Weak, frail Moses asking God for his name, not because he really wants to know who God is like, but because he wants to control and manipulate him. Because in their superstitious time, if you had the name of a god, you could control them, kind of like Rumpelstiltskin. You know that story? Yet God first gives him his being, I am who I am, I will be who I'll be forever, and then gives him his name, Yahweh, God still condescends, and names himself. God who is abounding in mercy and love, forgiving trespasses for generations, that's my name, now go. So the name of God is who he is. It's his attributes and his actions. 
So it's everything that we've read, the name of God, a God who is a father that's free, a father that is generous, a father that is accessible, a father that is personal, a father that is powerful, a father that is worthy. But can I add aspect of the name of God that I think matters, especially in this context? Because what you see throughout the scriptures is this weird dynamic of how, how God is rebuking people for profaning his name. And you know what often happens in that rebuke? It's because they disregard him. They disregard, so they don't treasure him. So there's not this rich affection. They don't actually care for him. But it also leads to disobedience. They disregard his law. And it is fascinating, dare I say startling, how many times God's rebukes for profaning his name have to do with his people living in unjust ways. So God is not just a, a God who is free and generous and accessible and personal and powerful and worthy. He's a father who is just. Psalm 68 brings this out. Psalm 68 says this, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, extol before him. That's that Halloween. Treat him comprehensively differently. Here's why. Look at how he introduces himself. How many of us are doctors in here? Anybody, PhDs? Let me just tell you, if I'm a PhD from the rest of my days, PhD, Bucci, UK, like it's just, like that's it, yeah, because I spend money on that. But like, but notice how he introduces himself for all of the ways that he could introduce himself. I'm a father of the fatherless orphans. I'm a protector of the widows, vulnerable, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home, homeless, sojourners. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land that the justice of God, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is his equity in all of his dealings, giving people what they're due, protecting them. And so you see this holy justice at the end, but leading up to this, you see this almost lavish justice for the vulnerable. He's a father who is just. His name should be treated differently. It speaks to adoration. I do not adore that which I do not know. I can't. I can't. And that's why what's beautiful about God as father is that's how he's introduced himself to be known as such. But here's what needs to be said. Not everybody is a child of God. Now, I know some people disagree with that. You're wrong, and that's okay. There's a lot of areas where I'm wrong as well. I'm dead. We all have places where we're growing. But if we were to use something outside of just us and something objective, we have to look at John 1, where it says that, he, he, he came to his own, Jesus, and they didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, they were given the privilege, the right, and responsibility to become children of God. So there's some people for whom God is actually not their father. And so all of this stuff that we just talked about is just aspirational. It's not actual. And there's other people for whom God is your father. And here's what I've learned in my life. 
The invitation into the family of God comes primarily through the people of God. And when the people of God don't relate to God as the father he is, those who aren't children of God have a bad perspective of what it means to be a child of God. So either they already think that they are and they aren't, and the implications of that are eternal, separation away from this father, or they see those who are and they're like, why would I want to be part of that family? I remember growing up, like we grew up po-po. Like, I mean, like, you, like no R, like apostrophe after the second O, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, and I would see people, I'm like, you have those forces. And I would want to be part of their family. So much so, man, people used to make fun of me. You know, Moochie, there's so many things that could rhyme with Moochie, you know, praise God. And like, Kindergarten was tough. And you know what I did? Man, I changed my name to Max. Because I was like, I'm going to choose. I'm dead shit, guys. I'm trying to be transparent. I'm going to choose the most Caucasian name I could think of. I'm serious. And so like, so that it could give me greater access to all of these families that I really want to be a part of. I was just scarred. And I was just, because there's something that they had that was attractive. Now, for, now looking back, one of that was wicked and foolish. And I love my heritage. But also, all that stuff was external. What God invites us into is something that is not just built on external dynamics, but this internal identity. So at the beginning I said, how we approach people is entirely dependent on two things. The first being how we view them, our perspective of them. But the second is our perspective of ourselves. And so if I don't feel worthy or I don't feel like I have anything to offer, I don't approach people a certain particular way. Right? You know that. That's just practical. Nothing inherently spiritual about that. But think about that with God and Christianity. I don't need to just see God as a father he is. I need to see and believe myself as a child he says I am. That's Ephesians. That's Ephesians. And it's when we start to receive and rest in that we enjoy what it means to be part of the family of God and then we invite people into that family. Let me close with just Ephesians and some stuff regarding not just who God is, but who he says we are that I think are worthy of contemplation and dare I say even praise. So you look at Ephesians chapter one, it was read, but I'm gonna read it again because we got a little bit of time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's so full to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth the application at the end is going to be contemplating and praising. Let me just go ahead and say that. Man, all of this was contemplating and praiseworthy. So loaded. But let me tell you some stuff that jumps out regarding who we are. 
and truth that we just need to believe because it's tied to who God says we are, the affirmation of the Father. Verse 3, we're blessed in the heavenlies. That means there's this rich inheritance that is beyond the here and now, though it invades the here and now, so it's protected, it's secured, it's not altering, it's safe, blessed in the heavenlies, chosen in love. In love, he predestined us for, the adopt, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. There's so much here, guys, to be chosen. Oh, I had a conversation with, at, at group um, earlier this week. Uh, I'm not going to put them on blast. But what they were saying was, man, during school for athletic stuff, they never got chosen. That wasn't the life I lived. I was like, oh, I was always first for dodgeball. But for them, they, were never, they was like, oh, I guess we got to pick you on this team. So come on. So the teams could be even, right? But God, right? You know that. You may be that person. But... But God is like, yo, I'm not picking you last. I'm not, I'm not going to get to you when I get to you. I chose you in love. I saw you apart from everybody else, and I chose you specifically. We, we like to talk about some of the implications of predestination that are jarring a little bit, that make us feel like we don't have any power or control, like we're just chess pieces, and that's not the case at all. But some of the implications of predestination, they're jarring in a very rich and settling way. That God from the foundation, from the beginning, before time was, said, I want that person. That's huge. Chosen in love. Chosen with a great future in mind. And so, so, so what you see is John 14, 2 also says this, this. Jesus is like, yo, in my father's house, there's many mansions, many rooms. And, and I'm going, and if I'm going, I'm coming back. And so there's this idea that there's this glorious future prepared for us, for us to walk in. That's also Ephesians 2. Pursued while disobedient. This is in him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So that means that while we are sinful, while we are broken, while we don't want him as father, he comes for us while we're disobedient. One of the hardest things to do as a parent is to, to pursue your child knowing they could care less about you. Because internally, you aren't like the perfect father. or perf You're not like that. So internally, you're like, I need you to show me something to make this a little bit worthwhile. But God's not like that. While we're disobedient, consistently pursuing, and this is the part I love and I'm closing with, we are thought of and thought through. We are thought of and thought through. We are in the mind of God. We are in the mind of God. I know this practically because so much of my decisions are constantly being filtered through my children. Not because I'm consumed by them, because I care for them. We are thought of and thought through by the Father in heaven. Resting in the riches of God as Father is hard. It's very hard. But when it takes place, it is not because of the fight in me. It's because of the faithfulness of God. And so my invitation, the application, is that we would use this leak as a, like a, as a springboard into the ocean, which is the fatherhood of God, and we would begin to rest well.
by contemplating God for what he said in Ephesians 1, by contemplating who God is in Matthew 6, and then praising him for that. And so if you aren't following us on any social media platforms, now's the time to do that. For Instagram and Twitter, it's the Brook M-I-A. And for Facebook, it's the Brook Miami. And for the next few weeks, really through the life of this series, we're going to be posting everyday stuff that we hope that you will contemplate on and praise God for because he's worthy. Would you pray with me? God, you are a father um, who is worthy. God, I, I do, I do um, pray that the fullness of that would never be lost on us, God, that we would just have moments where like just we just overwhelmed by how loaded and how rich and how expansive and involved that statement is that you are father, not like a father, you are father. This is your identity. And God, I do pray that for those of us who have come to know you, received you as such through believing in Jesus and his payment for our sins, that we have gone away, we've gone astray, we've disbelieved and disobeyed, yet you pursued and you came and, and we get to rest and receive that. God, I just pray for those of us who have made that shift from death to life, that this would be a journey of joy, reminded of what we may have forgotten, energized to continue towards a glorious future with you forever. And for those of us who are not your children, we, we, we don't have this claim, we're on the outside looking in like I was, wanting to change my name to Max, to just be a part of some family I thought could give me something that I was lacking. For those of us on the outside looking in, God, I, I pray that we would see something glorious that bids us to come, not something externally motivated, but something of intrinsic beauty and goodness and truth, which is you are who you say you are. And that shapes everything else. Would they see that from your people? In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. Um, we're getting ready to transition to a time of communion as, as a team comes down um, and our elders, our pastors come as well. Um, this series, the goal of this is to recapture the fatherhood of God as essential to our everyday lives. Not just our eternal one, but to our everyday lives. That we would relate to him as father. And the beautiful thing about communion is it is a reminder of the gospel so that we, we don't do what religion says, which is, man, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. But we do what the gospel has shown, which is, man, I've messed up. I need to call my dad. And there's a, there's a scripture that I think is helpful. I've been, I've been saying it um, to myself this week, and I would just say it to you guys as we take communion. And it's 1 John 3, 1. It says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are.